Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. There are so many platforms now to to get your stuff seen, whether it's stand-up, whether it's improv, uh, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a blog, it doesn't matter. If you feel funny coming out of you, do it some way, shape, or form. You can do it now. You don't have to crawl out of the muck of a club scene for a dozen years. You can get it out there and do it. At the same time, get the experience of working those clubs if, if you want. And the other thing I would say to, um, to perf- young performers is um, there is strength in the ability to write a joke. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am very, very, very happy today because I am sitting across from Jeff Cesario, two-time Emmy Award-winning Jeff Cesario, a man who I really have a wonderful feeling in my heart about. I feel a lot of love in my heart for this man as I touch a shirt that is iridescent shiny and silky and should never be worn outside of a cabaret but i don't want to talk about that and make jokes because they're not funny but i had the opportunity of representing jeff for a little bit of time and it was really special he's a really really special guy and before i really got into talking to him because as you know i never know what i'm going to talk about when i sit across from somebody less until i do but I wanted to thank all of you again for all the support. You guys are so incredible and have been amazing with all of the letters and texts and emails that come in every day. And I, I never could have dreamed about this, and I'm so grateful. But right now, I get to talk about all of this stuff that Jeff Cesario has been a part of and talk to you all about what I feel is the overriding thing that makes Jeff Cesario successful. And to me, and I don't mean to be a broken record sometimes, but I'm getting emotional here. It's about being a great guy. It's about being a wonderful, wonderful man. It's about being somebody who you have never seen lose their temper in 
all the years that you know him. (laughs) It's about a guy who has gone through incredible, incredible highs in his life and his career that you're going to hear about that are unprecedented for anybody starting out in the business as well as incredible lows that were bone crushing and after they were over wondering whether you're going to work again or work significantly in the business because what happens in our world is and this isn't true of the other worlds like if you're a pro football coach you can be Bill Belichick and be a 500 football coach in Cleveland and you can get a gig after you're fired. Rex Ryan can get a gig after he's fired and be highly touted after that. But in our business, if there's a show that gets canceled or you get fired, you are in jail. I mean, people look at you like literally you have some kind of plutonium all over you. And for some reason, they just don't feel the need to want to hire you when they can hire somebody who doesn't have the stain of a disappointment or something. It doesn't matter if you've won two Emmy Awards. It doesn't matter if you won an Academy Award. Just ask Monique what it means to win an Academy Award and then be in a situation where you do things in your career or you treat people a certain way or things get perceived a certain way. And all of a sudden, it's four years later, and you're wondering, wait a second, that was one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. How come I don't see this person anywhere in any movie? Why is that? If I had my choice, I might want to see this person again. And it's the same in the the behind-the-scenes world of writing and executive producing. And Jeff has always been an amazing man and so wonderful. And one of the things I want to talk about as you're out there in whatever job you do is the fact is there's a reason why people hire you because you're a nice guy. A lot of times you're hired because you're a nice guy because the person in power who's hiring you is not necessarily a nice guy. A lot of times the person in power is somebody who you, the public, perceive as being a wonderfully smart, warm, fuzzy person. My God, they're so likable. I can't believe the way they're dancing around like that. I can't believe the way they're laughing with their guests. I can't believe that rant that guy just did with that smile on his face. Wonderful. But what you don't see behind the scenes are writers that sometimes are so infuriated by the person they're working with, that they can't lose their temper because they'll get fired. So what they'll do is other things, like take it out on them in other ways or her. Sometimes they might slash a person's tires in the parking lot, and nobody knows how the tires got slashed except the people in the writer's room who are very, very happy when the host goes out to his car or her car and finds something happening. But the point being is that people who are nice people like Jeff Cesario, (laughs) kind, wonderful, warm, they make people who are tortured souls feel safer. They make those people feel like, okay, it's okay to be angry. It's okay 
to throw a tantrum. It's okay to treat somebody like shit because I can always go back in the room before the show starts and sit across from Jeff Cesario and feel like everything is going to be okay. And so the point I'm trying to make is that, and I say this as I think about my two kids, once in a while my kids will throw a tantrum when somebody says something or makes fun of them or says something mean. And I always try to say to them, look, if you think that's mean, wait until you get in the workplace. Wait until you get out there. And wait until what you have to experience. And if you throw a tantrum or react every time somebody punches you in the face verbally or physically, then you might as well just stay home and forget about walking outside the house. Because life is all about people all over the place not being like you and a lot of times making it harder than it should be. And so the point I'm trying to make in this cold open is that whatever whatever job you're in and however you're doing it and whoever you're working with, I can guarantee you there's somebody you're thinking about right now who's an asshole and where you're working, who's somebody who makes your life miserable. I don't care if you're at McDonald's and you're making $10 an hour and you're taking shit from the supervisor who's making $10.25 an hour. I guarantee you, if you can figure out a way to stay calm and do what you want to do, who knows, maybe just go in the bathroom and go to the bathroom on the clock. Whatever it is, the point being is that don't take it out on them. Don't lose your cool. Don't ever be in a situation where you let them see you sweat. Because if you do, they win. They've got you. And then the people around you will look and see how you handle things and say, this guy or girl is not ready for the next level. So keep your cool, take it easy. Whenever somebody upsets you, just go in the other room, blow off some steam, come back. And I guarantee you, if you do that, like Jeff Cesario, you will always win. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. For those of you who remember the Tonight Show, after a comedian paneled and sat down with him, and he said, we'll be right back after these messages, he leans over, he shakes the person's hand, and he says something into their ear. What did he say in your ear? He said great stuff. He just said great stuff. Great stuff. And you know, from another comic, let alone Johnny Carson, you go, okay, that's... That's that's one of those moments I'll never forget. I did a, I, I have to say this because I remember it. I did a Bob Hope special, somewhere in the early '90s, and he was just coming off his. I think he had had a stroke. He had his first heart issue, but he had recovered almost fully, and he was doing these young comedian specials. So it was me and Jeff Foxworthy and Carol Leifer and John Henson, and. Uh, um, we were we all were doing it, and then we had to do promos. And you did uh, promos for your markets. My strong markets were Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Chicago. So we did separate promos for them. 
we're reading the promos. Bob misses a line. It's just me and Bob Hope in front of a camera, which is ridiculous enough. And <laughs> he misses a line. And, you know, he's, he's already 90. You know, he just he's recovering from a stroke. So I pick up the line off the prompter and we finish the bit. And then he just leans in. This is Bob fucking Hope. He leans in and he goes, good boy. Like that. And I went, <laughs> I can die happy. <laughs> it was the coolest moment ever. <laughs> it was so great. So take me through how you transferred or made the transition into being behind the camera. And this is probably, if you tell the story I think you're going to tell, is one of the most amazing stories that I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I don't think I've ever known it happening, and I don't think it's ever happened since. Any time nowadays in the last 20, 25 years of my career when I've hit a low point, and I think, geez, I, you know, I could use a, use a pop, use a break, I have to think back and go, oh, dude, you got some big breaks. <laughs> the karma's still cool. Um, and this was maybe the biggest. I had been working as a stand-up based off of those Tonight Shows at a pretty high level, hitting those clubs, doing the road, getting some gigs on TV, that kind of stuff, through the early 90s. Um, Dennis Miller, simultaneously, uh, Dennis Miller and I had become fast friends in the mid-80s. We were two sides of the same coin. Uh, we wrote in a very similar fashion. We performed in a somewhat similar fashion. Dennis was a little darker, a little edgier. I tended to be a little lighter. Um, we hit it off like that the second we met, and we just became fast friends. And I think he was somewhat victim to the same thing. I think he w could be painfully shy. And so we sort of bonded. And then we would just sit in the back of clubs and just make each other laugh all the time. So we hit it off. He hit it in the mid-'80s for SNL, got the update gig, and uh, we maintained our friendship through the entire time. We did road work together. Uh, he had become clearly a marketable star at that point. Uh, he had had a syndicated talk show that they tried on the Tribune Network that was more of a traditional talk show. One hour, host, desk, couch, celebrities, that kind of thing. Uh, he was promised a year, I believe. He made six months and they, and they, they pulled the rug. I did his show as a stand-up three times. Uh, he was kind of licking his wounds, nursing his wounds. He was with Brad Gray at the time. His manager, Brad Gray. Um, and Not anymore. Now no. it's the head of a... Head of Paramount, right? That's right. Uh, so Brad uh, is able to... Now, at this point, as you pointed out in your cold open, oftentimes you don't get second, third chances in this business, you know. So Dennis had this talk show pop, and everybody was like, geez, what's Dennis going to do now? You know, how do they construct something around Dennis to make it work. So Brad went to HBO, went to Michael Fuchs at the time at HBO, great executive, real vision, and a real champion of comedy. And Michael Fuchs said, look, I like when he rants. I like when he does his stand-up and he gets off on these rants. Build something around that, and maybe we'll take a pop. We'll do like six half hours and see what happens. So Brad goes back to Dennis, and Dennis says, you know, he goes back to Dennis and says, this is the deal if you want to take it. So Danny goes, no, man, I'll give it a shot. You know, and then he goes, but if it's HBO, I want, I would like Jeff to produce. Let me call Jeff. So he calls me, and I'm just doing the clubs and everything. So he says, Jeff, would you be interested in producing, executive producing my show? And I go, 
Well, hell yeah. I mean, you know, I was just working the clubs. I'd had one or two pilots and things that hadn't quite gotten me traction. And, I th and I'd always been interested in that side of the camera because I'd always wanted to write movies and television and maybe be in them. But I, I, I liked that side of the camera as well. So Danny goes, do you want to do it? And I said, yeah, sure. So I meet with Brad. Brad goes, well, okay, let me take it to HBO. Brad Gray. And we go to HBO. And, and I don't. I'm not involved in any of these meetings. So, and again retrospect after another 20 years of of this i realized oh my god i don't know how they did it because i'm just a comic i have zero behind the camera experience and i'm essentially the executive producer of a show that could be dennis's last shot <laughs> at tv so not only is jeff a guy who i hope he doesn't take offense to this has never gotten somebody a cup of coffee on a set before. Right. Okay. He's being offered the number one highest credit that you can get on a television show by the star. That, to Dennis's credit on SNL, that was during a stretch when it was still a shark tank, that writer's room. Uh-huh. And a, and a hard Shark Tank to be in. So everybody in that writer's room was trying to get sketches on for the improv actors. Nobody was writing for Dennis. I mean, like, nobody. Herb Sargent would once in a while kick in for Dennis. The great, late, great Herb Sargent was tremendous. But her was busy running a room, running everything else. So I would throw Dennis stuff from the road. I would go, Denny, uh, this is a two-week so two bit. I can't do it anymore. Do you want it? Do you, do you want it? worked for me the last two nights. But that actually was smart of you because you decided to help him from afar, not go into the shark tank there and wait for a time where something could happen. But what's interesting also is that Brad Gray is a manager. He's managing Gary Shandling, some big people. Coulier, um, um, Brad Gray Sandy. wants to hire one of his guys. Yeah. He wants to package the show. The more people he packages in, the more powerful it becomes a package. The and, more Brillstein Gray can get more money, a whole big thing. And, and then when HBO. And HBO. Where's HBO coming from? They're coming from like, could we get somebody with some experience yeah, yeah. in here for God's sake? But Dennis is telling him. Adamant. Adamant. I have to have Jeff. Now, if you're a manager, which I am. Somebody says that, I'm like, I love Jeff, but, you know, we want you to right. have the best chance to win. Yeah. Maybe we can bring Jeff on as a producer yeah. and we'll get somebody as an executive producer. Hey, no, babe, I want yeah. Jeff. No. Jeff Rowe understands me. I can honestly say at this point, I have no idea the meetings that Brad was in, Brad Gray, where he had to go, look, this is what Dennis wants and, uh, you know, I believe there's a way we can give this a chance. I don't know how Brad did it. It, and to their credit, HBO, Bridget Potter, I will never forget her face. Just, you know, what do we have planned for this week? You know, <laughs> you know, and at the time, Dennis was, you know, he had already had his talk show. He's, so he's had celebrities. So we were scrambling. I mean, up, up to that point, the biggest name we had booked was Bob Costas, and he wasn't in sh until show six. <laughs> so we had, like, the associate director of the National Organization for Women. We had, you know, just, we had these people who were, you know, so. So your first show was. I can't remember who the first show was, but I also remember that we didn't have the, we didn't have the, the, uh, the racing fuel mix right yet. We had too much seriousness and, seriousness and not enough comedy in the first episode. 
And uh, Dennis came to me after the episode and he said, Jeff, we got to get some jokes in there. So we, we had, uh, we retooled for the second episode and I said, I got to get a guest no matter what. So I called his brother, Jimmy Miller, who was just beginning to blossom as one of the big managers in the industry. And at the time represented Jim Carrey, went on to represent Will Ferrell and, you know, tremendous manager. Absolutely. So I called Jimmy and I go, Jim, uh, whom I knew from just, you know, shooting hoops with when because everybody it, was nobody. But you also knew him because his brother booked comedy clubs. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, uh, Rich. So I called Jimmy and I go, Jim, um, we got to try to get Jim Carrey on this. And he goes, well, he's shooting Dumb and Dumber, this movie called Dumb and Dumber, up in the mountains in Aspen. He had just come off of, uh, of um, Ace Ventura Pet Detective. So he was hot. And, uh, and I said, well, let me see. Here's the brilliant thing HBO and Brad did was get a, uh, another EP named Kevin Slattery who handled all the line stuff. So I didn't have to worry about a lot of things that EPs normally have to What worry. Jeff's talking about is probably one of the most valuable positions in any show is the line producer who not only helps figure out who's hired as the craft service person, but who's doing the cameras, the budget that it takes that you have for remote pieces, what monitor you have, who the stage managers are. Very, very important position. And Kevin, Kevin tackled that with a vengeance, all of that stuff. So I went to Kevin and I said, Look, it's between Jim Carrey and, you know, I think we had the bullpen coach. For, you know, I mean, it was like we had nobody. So I said, we have to get Jim. There's just no way around it. I can feel it. I can feel it, you know. And I'm getting the blank stares from the network. And I'm, I, even though I'm, I'm a bit naive, I know, you know, the heat's on. So we have, I go to Kevin and I go, Kevin Slattery my my co-ep and i go can we get a can we get a satellite truck a, a truck up to aspen he goes yeah you know if it blizzards we're fucked but we can try so <laughs> i said that's all we got we can't take a chance on a second we uh, week two can't be like week one i'm surprised you didn't ask for the private jet oh god i didn't have the balls <laughs> i'm trying to deliver a show so jimmy busts his ass jim miller busts his ass we get, we jack the show full of jokes. We get the satellite trike that has to drive from Denver to Aspen in a blizzard. It gets there an hour and a half before the show. We're live. We are Dennis Miller live. We are live on air. The satellite truck barely gets there. You know, they're dropping the truncheons <laughs> into the snow, trying to get the thing jacked, trying to figure out how to. Jim Carrey's got the, 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 the stupid haircut. He's just sitting there. I, I remember with, this episode. It's our second episode. Second episode. I had come up with, with a hook, and we barely had that. We didn't want to presume to write for Jim, but we also said, well, we got to do our job. So we came up with a hook, and I, I remember kicking it around a writer's room, and I said, what, what, you know, the, the topic was fame. The one thing that I had been able to contribute to the show that I thought, I, a couple of things that I thought helped make the show, one of them was let's theme them. Even if we get off the theme, it'll give a slug line in TV Guide, really nice, you know. So, you know, Dennis Miller Live tonight. Goes um, back to Louis Anderson. Morals, yes, exactly, the the, the, the marketing. So I said, that's going to read. So tonight, fame. So I said, what if Jim pretends to be humble and then somebody walks in with a drink or he asks for water <laughs> or something and he just fucking goes off on the guy. That's the little kernel that we gave Jim. <laughs> So, so no pre-interview, no No, nothing because he's in the mountains. We don't but have it's a live show. 
And so I'm like, oh shit, man, let's let's hope this works. I'm just concerned we're getting a signal, because I'm getting, <laughs> boom, boom, I'm getting snow and stuff, and you know I got a I got a, you know, <laughs> I got a control booth crew that's already on edge because it's Dennis, you know, who's a, a tad prickly to work with. <laughs> So I'm trying to calm everybody down, hose everybody off. And Dennis is like, man, you know, I think we got great jokes. But like anybody in that situation, you know, and I've written for some great, great comedians. At some point during that week, whatever gig it is, whether it was Larry Sanders, whether it was Dennis, whether it's Billy Crystal, whoever it is, they're flying the jet. You lock down the cockpit, lock the door from from five days out. Anything they do, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. That's the funniest shit I've ever, because they're flying the fucking plane. <laughs> so Dennis is in the cockpit, and I'm like, Danny, you're fucking roasting this material. It's killing. So I'm trying to keep him like together. <laughs> Meanwhile, we finally get to like this through, this through the actual TV snow and the snow. We're getting a signal. So I'm like, oh, thank God I got a signal. We get a signal. <laughs> we go, the, the, the monologue crushes. The rant crushes on fame. He does a rant on fame. So we're 12 minutes into this show. It's crushing. We go to Jim Carrey live via satellite, box and box. <laughs> He's just sitting there with that dumb fucking haircut. <laughs> and, and he starts to talk, and he is laying this rope out like you wouldn't believe. Dennis, I think it's so important to stay humble to understand your roots, where you're from. Sure, things seem good for me now. I had a hit movie, but you know, a lot's going to depend on this movie. And and um, you know, my throat's a little parched. Can I get a little water, please? He's selling the shit out of this. And this kid—I don't know who the kid was. I don't even know who the kid. He brings in water, and I said, "Make sure it's on like a tray, just so what Jim wants to do." So he brings it out on a tray, just a glass of water on a tray. And Jim is sitting just like us. I still to this day have no idea how he did it. He's like this, and he goes, you call that water? Something like that. And he flies. He flies up. It's like a karate move. He kicks it out of the kid's hands, and he winds up in a standing position. I have, I have some news shooter from Denver who's smart enough to zoom out to get the whole thing, and he goes off on this kid for like three fucking minutes. And it's and he's he's like standing over the kid nailing him and then he sits down and he goes anyway where were we right fame fame should not and he just goes right back into it and I'm like oh my god I'm the luckiest guy in the fucking world that crushes we do like four minutes of picture jokes at the end that kill the show gets a standing oh with a satellite guest we get a standing ovation I'm out of my mind that week we get a review out of the New York Times. I think the fellow's name was John O'Connor, who said, Lenny Bruce is looking down uh, and no doubt smiling or something like that. Between that and that and the Jim Carrey show, HBO relaxed. And they said, okay, we see what this could be. We see how good this could be. So we're going to let it ride. And that saved, that saved us. And um, Denny just, Denny goes up, you know, these guys that have a mind that fast, that are that good, they're gunslingers. You know, you can't bring a, you can't bring a middle act out. <laughs> you bring a headliner out, and then Dennis is firing nothing but silver bullets. I mean, he crushed that show. And we won our first Emmy for that show. Just to put it in perspective, everybody. Okay, so. Jeff Cesario <laughs> hadn't gotten anybody a donut on a set, okay? He gets the call to be the executive producer. HBO 
simply the best yeah. agrees to have a guy executive produce a show who has done nothing, and in his second episode, they win the Emmy Award, and if I'm not mistaken, is the first time a cable network A cable won- series beat a network series for an Emmy in a major award. And then, four years later, there were no more Ace Awards. That was the one that kind of popped the popped balloon, and then all of a sudden they were winning Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting, Best Show, that kind of stuff. Within the next decade, Cable took over the end. Ironically, the two shows you beat, Letterman yeah. and The Tonight Show. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and That's then, right. of course, you do great work. You keep your job. Yeah. And then they do the second year, and second you submit year. which show for an Emmy we Award? We submitted the Robin Williams show, which was our, our uh, second show of season two. Got it. So the first show, they only oh, got a six-episode six order, which is very rare. The second season, I believe they got 13. And then your... First show out of the box, same mistake. Too serious. We had had some some factions on staff that had wanted to sort of uh, set a, a more political course which is great if you have the jokes to back it up. And again, the, the the fuel mix wasn't quite right. And we had to jack in some high-octane jokes for week two, which we did. Fortunate enough, we look up and it's Robin Williams. I make the call to Robin Williams. The second show they submit wins an Emmy Award again. Yeah. So Jeff Cesario, the man you're listening to today, who never did anything on a set, has now won two Emmy Awards in eight shows. <laughs> That's right. And as I say That's to true. anybody listening, it's one thing to suffer glorious defeat at the beginning of your career, which, believe it or not, is much better because you have nowhere to go but up. But if you're in a situation where you just won two Emmy Awards in eight shows... yeah. Where do you go from there? What did you say to yourself? Like, what can I do to top this? Well, I'll remember a couple of things. The first thing is after that first Emmy that we won, Dennis and I took a little walk after the first Emmy, and we just looked at each other. And, you know, he's from a blue-collar city, Pittsburgh, and I'm from a small blue-collar town in Wisconsin. And, and we just looked at each other, and we said, you know, if we died tomorrow, we would be extraordinarily happy. This is the pinnacle for two young bohunk idiots out of essentially the Midwest to crawl out of the muck and mire and, and get somewhere in show business to a point where you won an Emmy. Um, so that was fantastic. Then, then the second thing that I did think, and, and I started to get the, the germ of savvy at this moment. I still don't have a lot, as my career will attest, but, but I started to think, it's amazing. I went from, and I mean in a span of six weeks, I went from, this guy, he's a comic. He can't handle shit. Get somebody to please get a team of whatever. God almighty help us to, you're the guy who can handle tough comedic talent. We're going to do a show <laughs> with Chris Rock. You're the EP we need. <laughs> and he got very, six weeks. <laughs> uh, and suddenly, oh, I'm the guy who can handle, you know, prickly talent or comedic geniuses or whatever, you know. But this is the other thing that happens if you get to this point. What happens is you get offered jobs left and right to do for more money, 
more prestige, even though you've won an Emmy Award, and they offer you things that overpay you. But now you have a guy, Dennis Miller, who basically bet on you. Yeah. He went and he fought for you. Yeah. And he stuck his neck out for you. But yet you have this offer on the table that you have, you know, you have to decide whether you take it or not. Because if you take that job, you can't do the other job. Right. I wound up doing uh, 39. I did another, uh, we did a cycle of six, a cycle of 13, then a cycle of 20. And I stuck around for the 20. At that point, I knew the show was was in great shape. I, you know, it was wall-to-wall refillable. At this point, what you needed was just continue a pipeline of great writers on the show. Um, I decided I had, a, I had the potential Chris Rock thing. They wanted me to meet on that, but that was going to be out of New York, and I loved Chris. And I, But I didn't know if I wanted to get pegged as that guy. Um, I wanted to get in the narrative, and then Gary Shandling put an offer on the table to come on his show. I had done a script with Judd Apatow. My last season on Dennis Miller, I had done a script with Judd Apatow for Larry Sanders um, called The Bump, based on my personal experience on the show. I had been writing, I had met Gary through Dennis. When you say the bump, being bumped from a show. Being bumped from a show where they run out of time. It's usually the comic. They bump off the tail end of the show. Now, I had um, been writing stand-up for Larry, for Gary. Um, they would do these monologues in the Larry Sanders show, and, and uh, Gary was kind enough to ask me to write for that. I had done some writing for him when he guest-hosted The Tonight Show, and he had liked that. And um, Dennis and I would always go when Gary was guest-hosting The Tonight Show and write for him because it was just such a blast, and Gary's a, a genius and a ton of fun. So when uh, I, I decided... So I had been around the Sanders camp, but I hadn't done anything but write monologue jokes. And they, they sort of as an homage, he got in the habit of saying, uh, Jimmy Kimmel has sort of borrowed it with the, with the Matt Damon thing. He got in the habit of saying at the end of Larry Sanders' episode, at the end of the beginning monologue of Larry Sanders, he always starts the show, usually start the show with a monologue. So a minute into the show, he's wrapping up his monologue, and then you go behind the scenes into the real Larry Sanders show. Well, at the end of those monologues, he would, or the end of the show, whatever it was, he would always go, my apologies to comedian Jeff Cesario. We ran out of time. <laughs> we'll get him on next week or some shit like that. And we added it up at one point. It was like eight, nine times he'd done it. So I said, why don't we write an episode where I get pissed that he bumps me for like a tenth time? And then he promises to get me on and all hell breaks loose. And that's about what I had. And then Judd came in and said, let's do it this way. Let's add a ticking clock to it. Let's add the plot that Hank's dad dies and Hank wants to do a big eulogy now. So all of these clock pressures on the very <laughs> next night that Gary has, Larry has promised to get me on the show. So it, it was... And this was your first acting gig. Yes. Uh, no, I had done some acting in the late 80s or early 90s, right around the same time. Uh -huh. um, and uh, so uh, so, uh, so we decide to go that route. Judd, you know, dolls up the script and makes it presentable because he knew how Gary liked to look at scripts and what he liked and what he didn't like. He could monitor that. And, uh, you know, Judd was a, a great right-hand man for Gary, as was Peter Tolan. So I was fortunate enough to have uh, Judd put his touch on it. We went, Gary said, this is great, let's do it, and uh, did it. We did it. So based on, I think, what Gary may have seen in that script, he said, would you like to do a year on staff? So I had always to, wanted to write narrative. And so between Chris Rock and Larry Sanders, I said, I got to go Larry Sanders. Okay, but you get the offer from Chris Rock yeah. and HBO yeah. for an executive producer gig. 
for Larry Sanders, if I'm not mistaken, you didn't get the offer for the executive no, producer. No, no, it was just producer right. I know. So yeah. you took a step down. Well, for me, it didn't feel like a step down monetarily. It was a, it was, it was a good. No, move. monetarily much bigger. But I'm talking about the, the credit. Why did I you... had decided after 39 that I that I knew I wanted to try narrative. And uh, and if I was going to stay in that end of the business, I thought, well, I would just stay with Dennis. Why? I know this gig, you know. I loved Chris, and I thought it would be a real unique challenge. But but the biggest drawback for me with Chris was that it was New York. And I also knew he knew a lot of great guys out there. Jeff Stilson, Louis C.K. I mean, he, he, he stoked up Mario Joyner. He had guys all over that staff that, could, that knew him better, that knew him from New York, that knew his M.O. better, that could probably deliver on some level better. But also you took the risk and yeah. you went to scripted as opposed to the talk show format. Right. And sometimes you have to take a little step back to take two steps forward. And it, and it was amazing. I call it narrative camp. Every day mm-hmm. at Larry Sanders, I would drive to work and just go, what am I going to learn today? Because uh, Gary was great. Uh, uh, I had a tremendous showrunner in John Regi. John Regi. Who's brilliant. So Johnny Regi. He's, he's the from, best. From Ohio, I believe, and a great stand-up comedian great and a stand-up, great, great, great writer, showrunner. Great exec and a great person. And uh, John Vitti was there at the time, so I just slid in with the two Italian guys. And, and they covered my ass, quite frankly, on a number of occasions. They helped me uh, learn on the job without losing my job. Tell me your greatest disappointment in show business and how you turned it into something positive for your career. Well, greatest disappointment would have to be, um, I had a movie script uh, that I'm I'm still hoping to produce um, about a rock and roll manager who pulls his supergroup, a 90s supergroup back together uh, for a reunion tour because the lead singer is dying of cancer. <laughs> and uh, it's a very dark look at the music world, and I know that world a little bit. And I knew some guys who knew that world, and I had what, what I felt was a really good script that had gotten some good coverage and, and uh, had gotten me several meetings. In fact, back when I was with you, we'd gotten a ton of meetings on it. But again, it was sort of a dark, edgy script, and you needed kind of talent attached, I think. And I was just learning those things. But... Uh, one of our last meetings was uh, with uh, James L. Brooks, who is legendary. I mean, he's legendary. Movies, television, you name it. The guy's one of the best writer-producers in the world. The greatest. And uh, we're actually pitching another project. Um, and he says, send me a writing sample. So I send him the, the rock and roll movie script. And uh, he reads it and goes, you know, the hell with the pitch. I don't even care about that anymore. I want to do this. And we're like... Uh, yeah, cool. <laughs> you know, I'm like, this is great. You know, so we go in and meet with James L. Brooks, and he's like, this is fantastic. I really like the writing. And, and you know, it was such a validation to have a guy like this who I've admired from afar for so long. And he's like, this is fantastic. I want to do some things to it. And I'm like, yeah, well, yeah. You know, you're James L. Brooks. We'll mold it however you want. But he said, you know, I, every other page I felt surprised and energized by the dialogue and it felt authentic you know he just was really genuinely complimentary and to uh, I I realized in every stage of my career uh, as a stand-up then as an executive in television I mean you know producer in television and then as a writer uh, I'm very hard on myself and I need to 
know I'm hitting on all cylinders from someone who's hitting on all cylinders before I realize, okay, now I can relax and try to do my job. That was the ultimate validation for me as, as a film, as a scripted writer, television or film. And so he goes, we're doing this now. Uh, depending on when the writers go on strike, we'll cut the deal. <laughs> so like, like literally 36 hours later, the writing's, Writers Guild decides to go on strike. So we don't have time to close the deal. And, sh you know, even Brooks was like, well, you know, it's probably short, just, you know, three, four weeks, whenever we settle, we'll get together, we'll organize this whole thing and we'll knock this out of the park. Seven months later, the strike finally ends. And, you know, we can't communicate during the strike about, you know, anything. So I don't know if he's still up for it. I don't know if he's what, where he's at, you know. So I finally have the meeting after seven and a half months now. I go in and James L. Brooks says, I've decided I, I don't want to do the script because I don't feel I, I, I have enough traction personally in the music world, creatively. You know, he just didn't feel he could really hit that out of the park. And, you know... After seven, eight months, his muse just went a, a little different direction. But I, I, you know, feels like a gut punch from Joe Frazier at that point. But he says, but I have notes if you'd like to hear them. So I go, yeah, you know, I mean, it was the weirdest feeling. On one end, I was, there was, wow, James L. Brooks is going to give me notes. And on the other end, my whole life just changed back to what it was, you know. <laughs> it could have changed huge. And now, now I'm back to this. And that's the only meeting I ever left. And he had great notes, by the way, especially if he was going to turn it into a script. Great notes. So, uh, you know, I went out to the parking lot and, and I just, and it was about, I think, a, a couple of months before my daughter had been born. My daughter was born. So uh, I knew time-wise it might be the last chance I had for a while to really sink a lot of time into a spec script. And I just, it was the only time I, I bent over at my car. I literally felt like I'd run around the bases and got thrown out at home plate. I was just like, oh, you got to be kidding me. You have to be kidding me. Uh, and it hurt. It hurt to, to it, it hurt to have to spend seven months waiting, especially for something I wasn't sure of the upside, what we went on strike for, which was the online stuff. We're still, there's still no validation to that yet. There may be at some point, but it was not, it hasn't turned into a monetary stream for writers. And I'm not sure it will. So that's a little extra uh, uh, punch. But but through that, through that, what I learned was, uh, I can write, you know, now I got to find the time I got to, you know, stabilize my career, whatever else is going on, my family, everything, make sure that's functioning, find the time to write and then just keep trying to write. And right now I'm just getting back to that. I think Rossi is a good example of, of that, the Dick Rossi show. Absolutely. Your proudest moment in show business. Wow. Um, I, th oh boy, that's that's such a hard toss up between my first Tonight Show and the first Emmy win because I will never forget uh, having just been nominated was sort of raised eyebrows in the business. How did these guys get nominated? Who, what show, where? You know, and we're nominated, like you say, against the Tonight Show and Letterman and and uh, I'll never forget, we, it, we all thought, well, it's a chance to haul out a tuxedo and go somewhere fun. <laughs> so we're sitting there, and uh, the late, great Phil Hartman, who I'd uh, gotten to know, was presenting the award for Best Writing in a Variety or Talk uh, series. And 
uh, Phil reads the nominees, and we're like, oh, this is cool. We're at least in the, you know, wow, they said our names. Well, not our names, but I mean, you know, they said the show name. And then Phil opens the envelope. He's on stage. We're down in the audience. And I just see him give that, that, that pleasant eyebrow raise where he just did, he did this number. He went, he was reading anything, and he went, like that. And I went, oh, shit. And he goes, it's the guys from Dennis Miller Live. And I was like, oh, I can't fucking believe it i was so amazed i was i was very proud both of those i was really proud at the emmys because i just thought wow we just poured our hearts and soul into the show we had the advantage of dennis who was a monster comic and the advantage of not clouding up a lot of things not not cluttering the turf between the writing and the viewer it was pure writing it was it was like taking a shot of pure heroin right in your arm so that was that was a great proud moment awesome final question what advice would you give to the young comedian in some working class small town trying to figure out how to get to the next level and get to the point and stage in their career that you are today also the kind of writer and performer and combination as such where you could get from where we were producing those shows with Louie to where you are today. But not only that, what advice would you give to the young executive? Because you work with so many executives who were into the fire. You mentioned Bridget Potter, yeah. who was like one of the most powerful executives I ever uh, worked with the in my life. The fact she stuck with me is still amazing to me. And so what advice do you have to those people who are going through the pressures that they have to help deliver the show to the network? And what advice do you have for the person on the other side of the camp? Well, for the performers out there, um, I would say there are so many platforms now to to get your stuff seen, whether it's stand-up, whether it's improv, uh, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a blog, it doesn't matter. If you feel funny coming out of you, do it some way, shape, or form. You can do it now. You don't have to crawl out of the muck of a club scene for a dozen years. You can get it out there and do it. At the same time, get the experience of working those clubs if, if you want. And the other thing I would say to... Um, to perf- young performers is um, there is strength in the ability to write a joke. Everything I've gotten, everything I've gotten is because I took the time to learn how to write a good joke. I listened to good jokes. I mimicked them for a while. Then I got my own energy and input into it. And, and that's so valuable i mean it's so valuable it gets you so many places it gets you punch-up gigs which can eventually lead to writing it gets you on camera it gets you behind camera it gets you in comfortable places you are looked upon as someone who can contribute to virtually any project that has comedy in it we need a good joke here who do we call call that kid who writes good jokes boom that's great for executives I would learn from my mistakes, and they're mostly mistakes of omission. I would say learn to have some savvy. Learn from your compatriots out there. Ask, 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 ask people you trust who have the job. Uh, Ask people above them who have the job. How would you want this job done for you? And as a shy guy, it took me a while to learn that, to learn that it's okay to ask. But I would ask, I would suck up as much information from as many people as you can and understand this, any meeting you go into, if there's five people in it, 
there's five agendas. If there's 10 people in it, there's 10 agendas. And serve that. That's not a negative thing. Serve that. Understand that any note from anybody is a good note. Even if all it is is a red flag. And as a performer turned executive, that took me forever to learn. Because the writer in me wanted to go, that's a crap note. I would never address that. But there's something there. Something bumped them. At least, at the very least, look on it as a red flag and say, okay, we'll look at that area and see if something's bumping us. That's the advice I'd give on both sides of the camera. Powerful. <laughs> Powerful for a shy guy who never did anything <laughs> before he got the EP gig. Incredible. This has been a podcast that many people out there, thousands and thousands, <laughs> millions will be inspired by. I mean, this is really great. I'm sorry it took me so long to ask you to oh, do this show. Jeez, no worries. I mean, I just had the parrot from Beretta on, and uh, and now you, so. Well, that, you know, imagine the things he's seen. <laughs> and, fortunately, as a parrot, can tell you about. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. That's the rare bird booking that works for you. <laughs> My pleasure. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and it involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins. 
the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session today at barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard. And because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.